I'm Stephanie Lemick, and this is Building Trauma-Informed Workplaces. On today's podcast, we'll be discussing the fourth principle of trauma-informed workplace cultures, collaboration. And I'm super excited for this discussion today, because while you likely talk about collaboration at work frequently, you may not be talking about it specifically in the way we think about it when we discuss it as a principle of trauma-informed cultures. So what do we mean when we talk about collaboration as a principle of trauma-informed cultures? Well, we know that effective collaboration is a non-negotiable in today's workplace. Being able to work well with others to achieve a goal is central to almost everyone's role in an organization. However, we recognize that effective collaboration that so often eludes organization and teams is more often than not a result of organizational design. Of course, interpersonal and relationship-based actions can take our approach to collaboration and make it much more effective for each of us individually, but it's really important that we recognize the structures, systems, and processes that can hinder effective collaboration. Um, And as many, many HR professionals like myself, um, probably anyone who's worked in a corporate environment for any length of time can understand there are structures in place that sometimes work really hard against that effective collaboration. So if you've been listening to this podcast or looking at other information that the Wounded Workforce has put out, we are really hoping to address not only actions individuals, teams, and leaders can take, but also we want to tackle some of the harder things like structural issues as well. So it's important that we talk about those structural issues in the workplace. When we think about how structure works against collaboration or how structures play a role in effective collaboration, the thing that most frequently comes up or the thing I most frequently think about is power imbalance and how power imbalances are inherent to the traditional organizational design that most organizations follow, that traditional hierarchical structure. And those power dynamics get out of whack or out of balance in those designs and can really hinder effective collaboration. Some of you may have experienced it. Even when there's a minimization of that hierarchy, there can still be imbalances in different types of roles or departments. So, for example, this is an easy one for me to think about. You know, as a career HR professional, HR is not typically a revenue producing function. So, revenue producing functions may have more power or have a greater preference, depending on the organization. But really what we want to highlight here is how structures, how different businesses create power imbalances. And addressing issues of power imbalance within an organization can be super, super tricky. And it's important to remember when we think about traumatic experiences, People who have had a history of trauma, likely they experience some imbalance of power in that moment, in that traumatic experience. Typically, there's an imbalance of power at play, whether that imbalance of power is between individuals um, with systems or organizations, or even an imbalance of power with nature and natural disaster. Um, That is an imbalance. 
balance of power. We as individuals do not have the same power um, as mother nature, for example. So addressing these power dynamics at work are really important when we think about avoiding any triggering behavior of past traumas. And we also want to make sure that we're not creating new trauma with those power imbalances, even when they're unintentional. One of the things we want to talk about as we look at power imbalances is power dynamics and positional power. And if anyone has ever heard me talk about positional power before, you know this is a hot button of mine. And if you've ever worked with me, you've definitely heard me talk about positional power. Um, So bear with me if you've already heard this before. But if you haven't, it's really, really important for folks to understand positional power and to attempt to understand your own positional power, which is a significant challenge that many of us face when we think about our role in the workplace. And, you know, I have a longstanding belief that the root of a lot of issues, a lot of issues where someone is harmed um, or harmed unintentionally, rather, is a deep misunderstanding of positional power. And positional power absolutely comes into play as it relates to an organizational structure. And it's it's a little easier to understand when we talk about an organizational structure because it's a little bit more visually evident because it's, you know, a typical org chart kind of helps guide or understand positional power. But as we exist in the world, there's also positional power that impacts us. And we can really understand positional power a little bit better beyond the workplace. And I would say even in the workplace as well, as we think about the different aspects of privilege we may have in our lives. Privilege, absolutely a hot button, something we've talked about a lot as a society in recent years. Um, I would always recommend for anyone regardless of where you are, who you are, what your life experience has been, to reflect on what privilege you may have or have had in your life, not as a critique of yourself um, or something you've done wrong, but just as a tool to better understand your own experiences and a tool to better enhance your self-awareness. Understanding your privilege is a tool for self-awareness to better interact with others in the world and in the workplace. And it is a tool that will make you a better partner, a better leader. It's not a, this is what's wrong with you. It is a, hey, this is how your experience is different and the way that your experience has been different that may have given you some kind of advantage. And the flip side, we all have experienced a lack of privilege. This is universal to all of us. It just looks different. So as you explore that idea or those thoughts, keep that in mind. When we talk about privilege, when we talk about positional power, these conversations are to help you be more self-aware and in turn be a more trauma-informed leader, manager, peer. Let's talk about positional power and how, how it's so hard to understand and why it's so hard to understand. When we think about it in the traditional sense of someone in the workplace, let's think about what a traditional kind of corporate stereotypical work experience looks like. 
So someone is an individual contributor. Someone is a person on a team and perhaps they're a high performer. And so then they are promoted to manager. Promotion to manager, especially the first promotion to manager in a career, especially when you're moving from peer to manager, is an incredibly challenging and stressful time. And it can be really difficult as it relates to self-awareness around that change. So you go from being a peer and on relatively equal power footing with members of your team or specific individuals. And then when you move into that manager position, those relationships change and those relationships change primarily because of a shift in power. And you may think you're the same person. You probably are in many ways the same person. However, your relationship to those individuals on your team has changed because you now have power over what work gets assigned, their performance, their compensation, whether or not they keep their job. And that shift in power is significant. Moving from someone who's kind of equal to you on the same footing and to someone who is not shifts things significantly, even if you are not changing your behavior. Sure, absolutely. There are some people out there who, you know, have an increase in positional power, have an increase in the authority and will take advantage of it and know that and exploit it. Those people absolutely are creating environments that are unhelpful. They're exploiting positional power. Um, and those are not teams that are trauma-informed. When someone is actively exploiting power, that is not a positive experience because that power imbalance that is so prominent when we think about a traumatic experience, someone willingly and willfully exploiting that, that is very likely going to be unpleasant, toxic, and very potentially triggering or even creating new traumatic experiences. So want to acknowledge there are folks out there who have power and they do that. It comes up. I don't want to spend our time focused there because I don't think that's actually the most frequent issue that comes up when we talk about positional power or misuse of positional power at work. I think the most frequent issue that comes up, a misunderstanding or an unawareness to your own positional power. It's so hard. Self-awareness is hard. Like, let's just stop and be honest about that. Self-awareness is hard, especially when something is changing about us that's really kind of external to our situation. So it's the environment that's changing. So that changes our relationships with others. So moving from that peer to manager role, perhaps nothing about you really changes. So it's very hard for you to recognize that shift. And a lot of times managers moving from that peer to manager role aren't given enough support, training, resources to really feel and understand and gain some more awareness around that shift as well. So it's a little bit like you have these blinders on. You think, oh, I've worked with Sally for years. We have a great relationship. And then all of a sudden that relationship changes. And neither you or Sally have really done anything. It's about that shift in power dynamic. The more senior you get, the more power you have, the less likely you are to kind of understand how you come across in 
interactions with others on the team. You're also typically much less likely to get honest, candid feedback, especially that tough, honest, candid feedback. And so it just kind of compounds that misunderstanding of your positional power, how you're coming across can kind of snowball. And, you know, what starts out as, you know, a teeny tiny little, you know, quarter size misperception of yourself. As you advance, as you gain more power, as you continue to get less feedback, can become, you know, a mountain. This is why a lot of organizations leverage 360s because you're trying to get a viewpoint holistically from everyone around how you're perceived. Listen, if you've been through a 360, they can be really tough, especially if you've gone years and years and years without kind of receiving that feedback around how you are received within your organization. Um, We could probably go on and on about 360s, but they are a helpful tool to kind of understand. It's important to understand if you're in a position of leadership, if you're a position of power or authority. So for example, I'll, I'll call myself out here. You know, I've spent, I spent my whole corporate career in HR positions. And while many of those positions, I did not have a team directly reporting to me, I did have power that was different because of my position, uh, positional power. Funny, isn't it? In that position, I had information that was not widely accessible to the team. And then I also had access and relationships with individuals who were more senior in the organization, just given the nature of my role. If you've had different roles and different kind of organizations, you probably can reflect on kind of differences in how people interacted with you, positional power, things like that. You know, even in organizations where HR had more of a seat at the table, those feelings of positional power for me were very different. Positional power is going to be your most obvious uh, and organizationally structure-driven source of power within organizations. It is really something that's worth examining and, you know, getting good feedback about, you know, maybe look to peers. If you have a truth teller on your team, um, I have an amazing friend who talked a little bit about, you know, being a truth teller, encouraging truth tellers on your team in a recent panel discussion about collaboration. And that's super important. That's going to be really helpful to help you understand, you know, what your positional power looks like. Also, If all else fails, take a look at an organizational chart and see where you fall. And that is going to give you a really great visual about your positional power and what you may need to reflect on. Next, we relational power. So relational power within organizations is about power derived from an individual's relationships, network, or alliances. And that can be within the organization and outside the organization. So think about it. Having influential connections can provide access to resources, information, and opportunities. And those can be used to influence others or achieve personal or organizational goals. For example, if someone has a family member working within the organization, that relational power could come up. 
So that relational power is another one that's really interesting. And what's challenging there is it can be less conspicuous. It's not as easy. You can't see it on an org chart, for example. So really be thoughtful about that. And this is one where HR leaders, managers, leaders in general should be thoughtful about relationships and relational power to make sure it's not creating dysfunction. So displays of favoritism, hiring friends and family members, really you have to be super careful in this area. Another area of power or source of power for individuals within an organization is reward power. So this stems from someone's ability to provide incentives, reward, benefits, or other. Reward power could also be related to, you know, time off approvals. You know, I remember in my career, there were perks that were available, concert suites, tickets to events, and uh, executive assistants kind of oversaw those. So that was a, a reward power. Um, that someone may have. So it's really, can you provide incentives, rewards, or benefits to others and how you do that? And even a, maybe a, a less traditional one, access is also reward power. So if you've ever worked with, you know, an assistant, had the power to provide access to someone's calendar, to get time in front of someone, that could also be perceived as reward. Coercive power is our next type of power we're going to talk about. And it's kind of the opposite of reward power. And it's based on an individual's ability to impose negative consequences. So that could be, you know, someone refusing to work with you on another team, refusing to collaborate. Coercive power is that opposite of reward power. It is, you know, taking away or preventing you from getting access to something. And last but certainly not least is power derived from expertise or information. So think about someone who has um, specialized knowledge, skills, or experience that gives them expert power. So they're the only person or one of few people in the organization or even world that is able to do something. So that is going to create positional power for them. And that power is going to come from others recognizing and valuing their expertise and seeking their guidance and advice. Access to valuable or critical information that others need or seek can also give an individual power to influence decisions, to shape opinions, or control the flows of information. So if you've ever needed access to information and someone was, you know, very reticent to you, you can understand how that access, how that information can create a power imbalance. Lots of different ways or power imbalances can show up at work. You know, there's the traditional positional power organizational structure we talked a lot about. There's also relational power, reward power, coercive power, and then that power from expertise or information. Those all show up and come into play when we think about power dynamics and power imbalances at work. So really important to kind of understand how that comes into play for you as an individual, as a manager or leader, but certainly as someone is supporting an organization and trying to be thoughtful about creating a trauma-informed culture, it's important to consider these as well and how structures, how processes, how policies and procedures either support the mitigation of these power dynamics or if they reinforce them.
power isn't all bad. Power isn't something we can completely eliminate. We can't possibly eliminate, you know, power imbalances because there's just so many dynamics at play. We talked about privilege, all those things earlier. So really the key is to ensure awareness around power dynamics to make sure people understand. Because like we said before, I tend to believe most people are not intentionally trying to misuse their power. So that awareness is going to be really helpful in terms of mitigating, you know, potential abuses of power. And then it's also important to make sure power is not being misused or abused to weed out those folks who may be doing it intentionally as well. So that's where you get people like to talk about, you know, toxic high performers, toxic leaders. Those are the type of folks that really can do a lot of damage culturally. So it's important you do not let people who leverage power, bad means or for their own gain, um, kind of recklessly, it's really important to manage those folks out or manage those behaviors out of your organization very, very quickly um, because that behavior can quickly spread. How could you individually manage power dynamics or mitigate the negative effects of power dynamics, you know, for yourself, within your team, within your organization? We've talked about it a little bit already, but first and foremost, you have to reflect on your own power. You have to do a little bit of reflection around your experiences and how they may be different than those around you and kind of monitor your self-awareness and ask for feedback, reflect. And I would say regardless of your role or level in an organization, I really would encourage you to take time to reflect here. Um, You know, obvious positions of power, like being a CEO, are clear. And so that's a lot easier to recognize. But think about all those complex and subtle imbalances that could come up through relational power, coercive power, reward power, information, and be really damaging as well. Those can have massive effects as well. So really take some time and reflect on your position of power in your current organization. Maybe it's hard to reflect on the present. So maybe start with your most recent role prior to the one you're currently in or your most recent previous organization and think about with kind of a full scope, a full lens of how things worked out. Think about your positional power, and that's going to give you such a better understanding of positional power or power imbalances in general, also your own power and how that shows up at work. If you're really struggling, HBR has an awesome tool. It's a little assessment tool. I will link it in the podcast notes on your current relationship or awareness to power. And it is super helpful. You you may have to have a subscription tax, but it's an awesome tool to check out as well if you're struggling to reflect on your power. Next, a great way to balance out power dynamics is to practice empathetic leadership. So you want to showcase your humanity and you want to lead with empathy to really focus on negating those negative effects of power imbalances. Make sure you're really open and vocal about your humanity and fallibility. This can be uncomfortable for some people, um, but it's so important to find a way that is genuine to you to find vulnerability. And for some of us, that can be, I had a hard day. You know, I just need to take a little bit of time and being honest about that with the team 
or letting the team know you've been impacted and, you know, really distracted by recent news events, or it can be as simple as, hey, I am going to take this afternoon off because my child has a soccer game and it's important to me to attend. But when we showcase that humanity, when we create openings to showcase that, we're also telling our team members that it's okay for them to be human, to be vulnerable. You're really looking for ways to engage your team with warmth and curiosity while you're modeling those acts of vulnerability so they can be replicated by your team. Your behavior, your actions, your words are communicating so much to your team in terms of your expectations, far beyond listing out, these are my expectations. I think we all know that. The unsaid, the unwritten rules of how we interact with others. Another piece of this is so important and can be really hard for us, especially those of us who have been successful as individual contributors by speaking up and having great ideas. This is me. I'm very chatty. Um, As you can tell, I have a podcast very chatty. I like to have new ideas. I like to get things started. When you're a leader, though, as soon as you speak up, the dynamic changes. Your ideas immediately kind of rise to the top automatically. And they're not always the best ideas. So make sure as a leader, you're listening more than you speak. And when you do speak, start by asking questions. Be curious. Stimulate discussions. Because as soon as you make your opinion clear, You're going to lose out on dissent, on other ideas. It's just going to make it more challenging to really get the most open feedback and discussion from your team in most scenarios. So don't don't lose out on that. Um, It does a disservice to you as a leader and it does a disservice to your team. And when you do come to a decision or offer feedback, be super specific. Be crystal clear. Um, Don't leave room for interpretation because it will be misinterpreted. So get super clear on setting expectations. Don't leave any wiggle room. It can be, it could feel like you want to leave wiggle room. You want to soften your language so it's not received as harshly, but you also want to be clear. One of my favorite quotes, clarity is kindness especially true when you have power because whatever you say is going to be amplified and much better that the truth be amplified than something that's not quite the truth. It's also important though to consider if you don't like something, you disapprove, you're disappointed, you also kind of want to temper that. Same for approval. Don't be too effusive with your praise or your disapproval, especially in front of groups. You may be showcasing favoritism. We all know, like we've all worked with a leader who clearly had a favorite and like their behavior showcased that. And so it's really, really important to understand those interactions because it can create really interesting power imbalances. When you get back to that relational power, favoritism, it can be a super challenge. And then another great tool to have in your toolbox, and this is a great simple one to just jump in with right away, is shift as much as you can me to we when you're talking about things with your team. So just change those thought processes within your kind of leadership role. It's really, really helpful. 
Another great thing to consider is minimizing the visibility of your power. This sounds probably a little weird, but people kind of gravitate to that person with the most room. So make sure you're thoughtful about that. And some ways you could do that is if you're having a meeting, have someone else lead or facilitate the agenda or conversation. So everything isn't focused on you. This is super helpful specifically for strategic or brainstorming sessions. Um, And I'm actually a really huge advocate for if you have a chance to do it, using an impartial third party facilitator for those most important discussions. Another one is watch where you sit in the room. Um, Don't sit at the head of the table. Don't stand at the front of the room unless you are giving a presentation. And try and mix it up. Try not sit next to the same person every time. It may seem weird, but people notice things like this, especially when someone has a position of power. And then finally, this is a big one. Stay engaged in a meeting and present. And People will notice if you're checking email, if you get a notification on your watch or your phone and you're checking it because it is like you've just yelled, this isn't important and a megaphone. And hot tip, if you have an Apple Watch, turn off your notifications when you are in a meeting or you're giving a presentation or watching a presentation because those notifications, you're looking down at your watch to see them. It's signaling that you're looking at your watch to people. So what they see is you're looking at your watch like you're being impatient, you're ready to be done. So just be thoughtful about how those things may be received. And the watch one, someone told me that. Someone offered me that feedback. I would never have thought of that myself. But it is, it's like once someone said, I was like, oh my gosh, that's so true. So that's again where it's so helpful to have those truth tellers around you so you understand how you are being received. Last, let's talk about employee listening and voice as a way to mitigate power imbalances. So it is super important to create an environment where individuals at any level of power feel like they can raise a concern and be heard. There are tons of different ways to create employee voice, employee listening. Very common one is employee engagement surveys. Absolutely a great tool. You have to be thoughtful about the questions you're asking and what you're doing with the data afterwards. You can also have coffee chats with leaders, maybe anonymous survey or grievance process. Design what works best for your culture. This is a way to really be thoughtful about who you are as an organization, how your team likes to interact, and find a way to get feedback from every level of your team in that way. Two things, though, that are non-negotiable regardless of what your employee listening strategy is. First is equity. Everyone has to have an equal voice. If you ignore some opinions and prioritize others, you've only reinforced the negative impacts of power dynamics. Let's say that again. If you ignore some opinions and prioritize others, you are only reinforcing the negative impacts of power dynamics. So equity is huge here. And then second, and this is like a hot button of mine, if you are asking for employee feedback, you absolutely have to do something with that feedback. Like even if it's just acknowledging the feedback and saying, hey, we can't take action on this right now. That's okay. Everyone might not be excited about that, but that is better by than not even acknowledging it or not doing something. Just letting people's feedback go into a black hole 
it risks doing a lot more harm than good. In fact, I would say the biggest issue I've seen come out of, you know, employee engagement surveys or practices with organizations is team members feel like they have offered countless amounts of feedback. They took time to fill out the survey, offer comments, and nothing happened with it. And you risk actually disengaging engaged employees because you're ignoring their voice or their feedback. So those, two, if you are not able to guarantee or work to very seriously address those two things, equity and action, when you're seeking employee voice, employee feedback, don't do it. You're not ready. It's the whole thing. If you just get a survey, look at the survey data, say, okay, good, and then don't ever respond, you haven't engaged in an employee engagement survey. You haven't engaged in employee listening because it's not reciprocal. That reciprocity has to be there for it to be effective. I'm going to nerd out just a little bit here. I'm going to try and keep it brief because I know it's not super interesting to a lot of people, but it's really interesting to me. One thing to consider about organization and organizational power dynamics and how that interacts with collaboration, organizational structure, organizational design, this is where it gets to process, to structure when we talk about effective collaboration is how a structure is designed really can change and shape collaboration with an organization. Obviously, it creates power dynamics, but there are also different ways that organizational structures can impact how individuals collaborate. Organizational structures that are very siloed by different functions, different regions, kind of their own kind of different thing going on, they can really be challenged in terms of collaboration because of those silos, because, you know, maybe that creates some internal competition, creates negative behaviors of information hoarding or an unwillingness to collaborate. Those are not productive. For most organizations, I would say, especially for most sizable organizations, there's some level of structure you're going to need to have. You want to be thoughtful about for that structure, though, what type of collaboration issues may potentially be at hand. So for example, siloed structure, your silos aren't talking to each other. They're not working together. They're not partnering. How can you create avenues for that collaboration to occur? Another example is a really flat structure. So like everyone reports to the CEO, while that may seem like something that would be great at minimizing power dynamics, it also leads to a whole host of other issues. That CEO is going to be pulled in so many different directions. It's probably not going to create even power dynamics because some people get more time than others. Um, also, it kind of doesn't create really a good mechanism organizationally for solving through issues. We're kind of asking more of the CEO. We're asking more of individuals. And it doesn't necessarily enhance collaboration. It could create a scenario where the CEO is playing referee all the time. And there are many, many ways to do much better work. Another super common org structure, especially currently, is a matrix org structure where there are, you know, if you have, feel like you have multiple bosses, whether formally and informally, you're probably existing in a, some kind of matrix org structure. Again, 
these are helpful in terms of facilitating collaboration. They're also absolutely the hardest to get right. They can be very challenging. And so it's really important to kind of navigate and create avenues to minimize complexity for individuals and to manage power dynamics. Because think about if you have kind of two bosses and then power dynamics come into play, things can get really out of hand pretty quickly. Um, so important to consider. Bottom line, when you're thinking about organizational structure, and I know there's not a whole heck of a lot of us out there that are deliberately building organizational structures, but when you're thinking about it, whether you're building it or you're existing in it, one thing to consider is, okay, what is my structure and how can I better understand the pros and cons of the structure as it relates to power dynamics in the organization and then how it relates to collaboration and effective collaboration within the organization, because that's going to be really helpful. So again, it gets back to self-awareness, the self-awareness of yourself, but then self-awareness as it relates to your organization, what works because of structure and what doesn't work, and how can we kind of overcome both of those. So super important as it relates to collaboration. We talked a lot about positional power, power dynamics, structure today as it relates to collaboration. So if you are looking for more as it relates to what individuals can do about collaboration, we'll definitely cover that in a future podcast. But for now, another great option is checking out our recent panel discussion on collaboration. It features three amazing experts. It is available on YouTube, and I will make sure and link that in the podcast notes as well. Thank you so much for your time today, for joining us for this conversation about collaboration as a principle of trauma-informed cultures. Until next time, be well.